It's no surprise that this war against cancer has followed the similar war pattern that has dominated the 20th century, even into the 21st century today. Everything's war. It's the, it's the solution for everything. Every conflict. War is the answer to any and all conflict. War is even the answer for disease. Interestingly, though, cancer is the only disease that has been declared war on. There's been no war declared on Parkinson's or diabetes or obesity or cardiovascular disease. Only cancer. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Well, here we are again. You know, I always say that the goal of a physician is to heal and to teach and provide hope and serve patients through that process of integration. But we can all be taught, so I want to give a little hats out to uh, Scott, who actually corrected my pronunciation of a Hebrew word. Instead of what I called it, Raphae, it said it's Rofet. So, Scott, thank you for teaching me. I want to talk a little bit about war on cancer. Cancer and war seems like an odd connection of words, but actually... It's born out of history. There's that concept again. Out of history comes the contextual meaning of words that really provide relevance to modern times. War was first declared on cancer in 1971 by President Nixon in his presidential address at that time. This was actually formalized with the signing of the National Cancer Act in December 23, 1971. Interestingly, the wording, the war on cancer, that phrase, actually has its origin literally out of war. Chemotherapy, for example, one of the pillars of conventional treatment, it's born out of war. It's born out of the war department. That is before it jumped into the medical department. And I'm, I'm going to highlight a, a blog post that I wrote a little bit uh, back about how this process occurred. So, 50-plus years now of war on cancer. Where are we? What has that war, those 50 years, brought us? Interestingly, interesting point here. To support this move to the war footing by President Nixon in 1971, there was a biological warfare facility. It was at the Army Fort Detrick in Maryland. And it was converted to the Frederick Cancer Research and Development Center. So literally, figuratively, location-wise, biological warfare was transferred to chemotherapy and cancer therapy. This war footing, from a conventional point of view, it's present in its origin, in its declaration, everybody pronounces it, go to war on cancer, in thinking and in practice. But we all recognize when we go to war, there's the battlefront, right? That's where all the war is. There's the smoke of war. There's the, you know, the damage and everything that's associated with it. But we also recognize that with war, there is massive collateral damage. Outside of that battlefront, there's, there's collateral damage everywhere. Lives are eternally affected. Families are destroyed. 
take outside the context of war and the battlefield and look at the body as the battlefield over the last 50 plus years. And you can see the collateral damage. You can see the lives affected. You can see the families affected. And that's literally what the concept of, of going to war on cancer has brought us. It's collateral damage and destruction. It's no surprise that this war against cancer has followed the similar war pattern that has dominated the 20th century, even into the 21st century today. Everything's war. It's the, it's the solution for everything, every conflict. War is the answer to any and all conflict. War is even the answer for disease. So if it didn't uh, you know, help control your competitor or your enemy in another country, you can use it to control disease? That doesn't make any sense. Interestingly, though, cancer is the only disease that has been declared war on. There's been no war declared on Parkinson's or diabetes or obesity or cardiovascular disease. Only cancer. So when look at, looking at the war on cancer, it's really from the disease department to the war department, from the war department to the cancer department, and from the cancer department to war on the body. So I want to read a few highlights from a previous blog post I wrote because it'll provide some historical context to this transition that I've talked about. Paul Urich gave us the treatment of disease with chemicals. As crucial as Paul Urich was to the origin use of chemicals to treat disease, the baton was passed to Fritz Haber, who is considered by many to be the father of chemical warfare. And again, if I mispronounce these names, please my apologies. Paul Urich was a brilliant biochemist that lived from 1854 to 1915. He won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1908 for his work in understanding antibody production by the immune system in response to bacterial toxin production. The phrase magic bullet actually has its origin and credit to Paul Urich in the late 19th century. Fritz Haber was intimately involved in the launch of the first battlefield use of chemicals in warfare on April 22, 1915, with the onset of the chemist's war, that it's called. In fact, he was called the doctor of death, Dr. Death. Yet he was awarded a Nobel Prize in biochemistry in 1918 for his invention of the Haber-Bosch process for the synthesis of ammonia. As so often is in is the case, chemotherapy's collateral damage is unintended and far-reaching. History records that Clara Haber, his wife, committed suicide in part to his development and research in using chemicals for World War I. This is a quote pulled out of a book. Quote, what Fritz Haber has gained during these last eight years, I have lost, said Clara. And what's left of me fills me with the deepest dissatisfaction. War is war. More specifically, Fritz Haber said, quote, death is death. Won a Nobel Prize. It is conflicted, he said. Even in the beginning, history documents unintended death and destruction as a result of chemotherapy going back to war. The origin of modern-day chemotherapy and the treatment of cancer was not from World War I use. The origins actually are from a Germany air raid and allied ships in Italy in World War II. This 1943 raid destroyed ships covertly carrying mustard gas bombs for World War II. Never heard of it? 
Well, that's because it was swept underneath the rug. But history records this event as the Little Pearl Harbor. Fortunately, due to the Genevacan Protocol of 1925, which prohibited the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and all analogous liquids, materials, or devices, chemical warfare was agreed to be excluded from World War II. Yet it was not. It was continued in many wars to follow. It's interesting that a Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Alexander's discovery that Allied forces mustard gas from the American ships that were bombed by the Germans in that bombing raid in Italy was the source at the heart of the deaths at the Barry in the Mediterranean that day. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Alexander investigative report of the incidents at the Barry published on December 27, 1943. And that actually inspired another colonel by Cornelius P. Dusty Rhodes was his name. And he was the chief of the medical division of the Chemical Warfare Service. And it, this, this, this understanding that he developed from this report caused him to change the tar target of chemical warfare from the battlefield to the medical field. This is where the idea came from. Colonel Rhodes sought out and was able to convince two names that you may have heard of to endow a new institute that would bring together leading scientists and physicians to make concentrated attacks on cancer. That's their quote. The names, Alfred P. Sloan Jr. and Charles K. Kettering, from War Department to Medical Department. Replace these words physicians and cancer from this quote with generals and enemies, and it sounds like a new conventional war news headline. So it's not far-fetched at all to say that where we are in the treatment of cancer is born out of war, and all the collateral damage that we see in this approach to the treatment of cancer could have been predicted. That's what war is. That's what war brings, death and destruction and sorrow and pain. This is all documented in the book entitled The Great Secret, the classified World War II disaster that launched the war on cancer. Now it gets better. There is an eerily ironic identifier to the date of this announcement, which was August 7, 1945. It is a date that lives in the infamy of medical warfare. Most don't know about it. History always tells the truth, whether we, whether we choose to accept it and know it or not. The announcement of the Alfred P. Sloan Jr. and Charles K. Kettering funding for this Institute for Cancer Research and the announcements to the world of the atomic bomb are eerie. So this announcement of this new research institute was August 7, 1945. The announcement of the dropping of the first atomic bomb was also on August 7, 1945. Transition? Coincidence? I'll let you decide that. The actual Hiroshima bomb was on August 6, 1945, but the announcement was on August 7th. And then that was followed up by another one, atomic bomb, on Nagasaki on August 9, 1945. So a transition in history, a transition from War Department to the Medical Department. And that transition of war on the battlefield has just transitioned to war on the body. So where are we in this war on cancer 50 plus years. So let's look at some data. Because I've said, hey, we're gonna be evidence-based. That's, that's a phrase that gets overused and 
And uh, it, it's, its true meaning, I think, is drowned out because in many cases people will say evidence-based and they have no evidence to back it up. It's kind of that phrase to shut down debate. But let's look at some CDC numbers here. Cancer actually overtook heart disease to become the leading cause of death in Alaska in 1993. That's a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. Two states, cancer became the number one cause of mortality in adults in the year 2000. This increased to eight in 2005, and this increased to 21 states in 2010. Let me repeat that. In 2010, 21 states, cancer was the number one cause of mortality in adults over cardiovascular disease. Hadn't heard that data, have you? Because the data is not being told. It's being hidden. In 2016, the CDC updated this data. Cancer is now the leading cause of cancer death in adults in 22 states. Now, you might say, well, the trend is slowing. Well, you're running out of states to flip. So that, that number will slow. This includes states that you might consider population as being more healthy as Minnesota, California, Arizona, in that 22. So unfortunately, this war on cancer, this paradigm, this approach, it's not a winning formula. It appears if we just simply look at the data. Something just doesn't add up. This is another uh, draw from a Louisiana, uh, Louisiana, LA Times graphic where they were actually pulling from the NCHS data, looking at national vital statistics of systems and mortality. They found that the number of deaths due to heart disease, really from 1950s to 2010s and early 2010s, had started to drop and plateau, whereas cancers continued to climb, even accelerating after the de declaration of the war on cancer in 1971. Actually looking at the annual rates of cancer deaths decrease, yet at the same time the annual number of cancer deaths increase? That's right, I'll repeat that. They actually show that the annual rates of cancer deaths decrease, yet the annual number of cancer deaths increased over the same time frame. How do those numbers coalesce? How do they jive? How, that, that's inconsistent, that's paradoxical, but yet that's the data that gets put out there, and thus it creates confusion amongst patient, among patients and among doctors. Now, we can only imagine that with the last COVID pandemic, the last couple of years, this data is worse. And in fact, that's what published data is starting to show, but we're not going to talk about that today. But I do want to talk about another study. It's called the Prospective Urban and Rural Epidemiology Study. It was first published in 2019. This was, there were two different articles published in The Lancet. Very prestigious article, uh, very prestigious journal, excuse me. These, this was a large prospective international cohort study that involved substantial data from 21 middle, low, and high-income countries. It's called the PURE study as an acronym for short. The countries included in these two reports included countries such as Ar Argentina, Bangladesh, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, Colombia, India, Iran, Malaysia, Pakistan, Palestine, Philippines, Poland, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Sweden, Tanzania, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, and Zimbabwe. And here's a quote from the lead author of that study. Quote, we are seeing a new epidemiologic transition from heart disease 
to cancer as the leading cause of death. His name Dr. Latha Palanipian, and again, I may have butchered that, but he's a professor of medicine at Stanford University Medical Center. What they found in this study is that in high-income countries, in countries that are even on the high end of middle-income countries, cancer is the leading cause of mortality in adults, over the second being cardiovascular disease. Again, data you may not have heard, but it's data that's there. So here we have, we have data from the U.S. and we have data from global. Cancer is now responsible for twice as many deaths as cardiovascular disease in high-income countries. Let me repeat that because that's worth hearing again. Cancer is responsible for twice as many deaths as cardiovascular disease in high-income countries. That is the Lancet Journal. Looking at the World Health Organization global cancer data, this is pre-COVID, there were 18.1 million new cancer cases in 2018. This increased to 19.2 million new cancer cases in 2020. What about cancer deaths globally? 9.6 million new cancer deaths in 2018 versus 10 million new cancer deaths in 2020. Again, pre-COVID. So what will the 2020 to 2024 data look like? Don't know, time will tell. And we'll have to really scrutinize that data because there's gonna be a lot of reasons to not, I think, adequately report that. And why is all this important? Well, doctors don't read. There was actually an Institute of Medicine article published in 2001 that actually was looking at the level of practice that physicians were treating their patients, whereas where was the, compared to the publication of research. Let me rephrase that. So where were doctors treating their patient on a level of evidence and where was the actual published level evidence? And what they actually found is that where doctors were practicing and where the actual published evidence was, was a big discrepancy. Doctors were 17 years behind the actual published evidence. Now, to be fair, it's estimated that there are 1.29 papers, so 1.29 papers published in peer-reviewed medical journals every minute. Physicians, we take care of patients. We, we have to designate time to read. And we can't keep up with that kind of data. Nobody can. But looking at a, a former editor of the British Medical Journal by the name of Richard Smith, he said it's not just the volume of data that's the issue. And again, doctors aren't reading. He was quoted as saying only 5% of that published research, those papers, reached minimum standards of scientific soundness and clinical relevance. And in most general, journals, that figure was less than 1%. So it's not just the volume of data that's out there that doctors can't read. It's that a lot of the volume of data that's out there is clinically irrelevant and has no scientific soundness at all. So the next time you're watching the news and they talk about some great study, you need to first dive into the study design, how it's powered, how it's designed, how it's conducted, all of these things, because you may have a conclusion that's not based on what that study was actually designed to do. The clinical endpoints must be clinically validated. So let's dive into a little bit more evidence here that of what we're going to show that we need a change in medicine because the data supports it. Medical error is the third leading cause of death. 
This is actually from a 2016 publication in the British Medical Journal of Surgery. So medical error is the third leading cause of death, and it's the technical side of the problem here that they're referencing. They defined it by the authors as people dying from, quote, care they received rather than from the disease or injury that brings them to care. So looking at this from 1999 to 2016 in the study, there was an average of 251,454 annual preventable deaths from medical treatment. So if we take that annual rate and extrapolate that out over those years, that equals 4,777,626 preventable deaths from medical treatment. Now, this is interesting because this is based on adverse event reporting. And doctors historically don't report adverse events. In fact, data shows, studies show that doctors report typically well under 10%. So let's play some number games here. And let's be honest, it is number games. So let's say that if we actually achieve 10% reporting of adverse events, that mortality rate would be 276,599 preventable mortality mortalities. If we went to 20,000, it would be 301,745. <clears throat> 50% would be an increase to 377,180. Now, this is just in one year. And a 100% increase is 502,908 preventable deaths. Extrapolate that out over that same time frame of 1999 to 2016, and we have just shy of 10 million individuals. The authors estimated these numbers as real, but they also said these were significantly underestimated due to no medical errors being reported on death certificates. So all these patients, they had to, they had to dive into the medical records to determine that it was medical error. There is no uh, identifier on a death certificate that says medical error. So the very therapy that you're undergoing to save your life could be the very therapy that leads to the end of your life. That's what this data says. But what about chemotherapy? That's, that's in general. That's broad. Because we're talking about cancer here. So there was a study from 2004 called the Contribution of Cytotoxic Chemotherapy to Five-Year Survival in Adult Malignancies. This study looked at 22 different cancer types, and they found a five-year survival benefit from adjuvant chemo in only 13 of the 22 cancers. Now, you may go, well, Dr. Goodyear, that's pretty darn good. That's better than 50%. But in only three of those 13, so three of the 22, did the benefit of five-year survival reach, get this, 10%. That's it. Chemotherapy, adjuvant, 10% improvement in five-year survival. And the authors here said this was even on the upper limits of effectiveness because they said this is likely overestimated. So let's tie this into one of the most prevalent cancers today, breast cancer. The survival benefit from adjuvant chemo was only 3.5%. Let me repeat that, 3.5%. Try getting on the next flight with those percentages, those odds. This is your captain speaking. Just want to let you know we have a 3.5% of takeoff, of a safe flight, and even arriving on time, if at all. Who's going to be staying on that plane? Everybody's going to be jumping ship. Now, this study was 14 years ago, four, excuse me, 18 years ago, 
And yet, we've not made a change here in how medicine is being practiced. New evidence is coming to light that adjuvant chemo actually can disseminate the cancer. So if cancer cells are not destroyed, they can actually spread the cancer distantly, so metastasis, but also lead to increased uh, recurrence through mutation and local reseeding. This is called the seed and soil theory. So it kind of goes back to you know the parable in the Bible talking about seed and soil. How you prep the soil is what happens with that seed. The environment dictates the effect. And what we know about chemo, what we know about surgery and radiation is they can actually prep the soil distantly to aid metastasis. Now our understanding of how the process of metastasis is actually changing, we actually now know that this process actually occurs earlier than what we once thought. Maybe the size of one millimeter, which is an unpalpable nodule, at that point vascular uh, connections occur, and that's probably when these tumors start to seed, and these seeds lay dormant in distant areas. So our understanding there is changing, but the point here is that metastasis can be caused by chemotherapy. Chemotherapy will increase metastasis. It can increase angiogenesis, which is the blood vessel supply growth that actually supplies tumorous nutrients and eliminates the, rate, uh, the, the waste. Chemotherapy increases chemoresistance. And so typically when chemoresistance occurs, conventional medicine determines there's nothing that they can do. Chemotherapy increases local recurrence. It has developed this seed and soil theory, which is more than just theory now. It disrupts the immune system. There's these what are called macrophage type 1s and macrophage type 2 polarizations, which we'll touch on in future podcasts. It's a very technical thing, but understanding the tumor is a solid ball of cells separate and identifiably separate from the body no longer applies. There is this environment that's called a tumor microenvironment where the cancer is interacting with the body. And in that, integral to that process is the immune system. Chemotherapy stresses the body and alters genetic expression. I mean, there's one study that actually looked at uh, cisplatin, doxorubicin, and found that it disrupted or altered genetic expression, particularly what's called ATF3 in an ATF3-dependent manner, and this rendered the chemotherapy agents not beneficial. Paclitaxel, Taxol, a chemotherapy from a study from 2014 entitled Taxol Therapy Promotes Breast Cancer Metastasis in a TL4-dependent manner. It's called Tolike 4 receptors. This is actually a preserved kind of family of pattern recognition receptors that's reserved and conserved for the recognition of pathogens that we can encounter in our body. And this plays a role in cancer. And in fact, if you've ever heard of metabolic endotoxemia, this is the process by which the gut bacteria from the gut can actually trigger systemic inflammation and can actually promote things like actual diabetes. And in fact, if you look to provide some more relevance, COVID, those that are highest risk are the obese, the diabetic, the hypertensive. That's an inflammatory process. In part, this inflammation foundation background promotes cancer and cancer turns around and promotes inflammation. So showing you the relevance, not to just cancer, but to many other disease states. So paclitaxel chemotherapy actually promotes TL4 positive tumors to actually grow and spread. Chemotherapy. 
Another study from 2015 looked at carboplatin and taxol, actually showing how they do the same thing, but here a little bit different, actually promoting growth and the spread. There's this process, what's called uh, epithelial to mesenchymal transition, where cancer cells are stable, and then they become mobile. Chemotherapy can actually promote that process. Then there's something called tumor microenvironments of metastasis. These are a compilation of three types of cells, a macrophage, an immune cell, endothelial cell, and cancer. And these actually serve as the generation of a portal that allows basically a gateway for these tumor cells to get into the vasculature and spread out. Again, our understanding here is changing, as the science shows, about one millimeter size tumor the process of angiogenesis is occurring, this vascularity, and that's probably where these type of portals are occurring. And chemotherapy promotes this process. It actually upregulates this process. A study from 2011 showed that, again, chemotherapy can actually upregulate what's called vascular endothelial growth factor receptor, which is intimate in how this process of angiogenesis occurs. So the point here is that chemotherapy contributing to metastasis definitely can kill cancer cells. I mean, that's definitely true, but it will spread cancer. So the question is, if we kill cancer cells but yet spread it, and that's what causes 90% of morbidity and mortality, what have we done? To put it mildly, we are cutting off our nose to spite our face. But what we're doing there is we're not just not giving hope, we're actually eliminating the possibility of hope. That's what the science shows. Well, what about radiation? Well, radiation can do the same. Radiation increases local cancer recurrence. It increases the metastatic spread of it, and it actually increases secondary cancers and can actually increase new primary cancers, so new types. It promotes metastasis through tumor cell migration. It can actually attract migrating tumor cells into a distant site or to the original site and actually precipitate tumor recurrence. It promotes hypoxia in cells that survive. It'll actually increase that epithelial to mesenchymal transition and mobility. It'll increase circulating tumor cells, and it increases inflammatory signaling. This is if radiation is non-curative. Again, not a clinically validated endpoint, but that's what this study showed. It causes vascular damage, increases circulating tumor cells, and that's how that signal gets sent out. Also, through inflammation signaling, it promotes remodeling of that tumor microenvironment. By that remodeling, that's how cancer can invade and spread. These are just some of the studies that show how cancer can go from from immobile to spread to mobile to metastasis by inflammation, by radiation, just as in chemotherapy. Now, here's a surprise. We've already touched a little bit on surgery, but surgery-inducing metastasis. Research has clearly showed the mechanisms of how surgery can cause the metastatic spread through inflammation, through altering the tumor microenvironment, through altering and encouraging escape, both physical escape and immunological escape. It disseminates, it it frees it out in the circulation via circulating tumor cells, and it initiates the migration, invasion, proliferation, and metastasis via surgery, well recognized in the literature. They even recognize that from a conventional standpoint, so they work to prevent that and mitigate that. And we we can do that with things like 
high-dose vitamin C has been shown to boost the immune system preoperatively, even intraoperatively, to prevent a immune suppression after surgery. And this is why opiates such as morphine are such a negative thing in that postoperative state in, in cancer because these opiates, morphine, suppress the immune system. Natural killer cells, T lymphocytes, you suppress the immune system in already immune, immunosuppressed state, you are going to free up cancer cells to spread. And in fact, this process lingers for days and weeks and months. More than that, it promotes local recurrence. Breast cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, pleural, peritoneal, up to 65 and 69% in these different cancers. Surgery causing spread and local recurrence. So when we look at this process, it's not to say that you know, radiation can't help patients. If you had bone mets, if you have a tumor in the brain, radiation is going to be able to stabilize a fracture there and it's going to be able to shrink that tumor. But you can integratively come in and help that work better. Vitamin C with, vi vitamin C with uh, radiation to the bone. Boswellia, which is frankincense, to reduce the edema associated with radiation to the brain. Metastasis with chemotherapy can be, be prevented by lowering the dose and sequencing it with other therapies, whether that be hyperthermia, whether that be CBD, cannabidiol, which we'll talk about in the future. The point here is not to derade all these therapies, is to say we need to rethink them and how we use them because the science is directing us to. Because the last 50 plus years of war on the cancer has done nothing but brought death and destruction to the body. So cancer is the number one cause of mortality in high income countries. Cancer is the number one cause of mortality in 22 states. We are losing this war on cancer. War on cancer needs rethinking. We need a new paradigm. It needs to be integrative. We need critical thinking, not group thinking. Chemotherapy causes minimal impact but it, on the tumor, but it can cause significant impact on the body, particularly the immune system. Chemotherapy causes METs. Chemotherapy has brought medical, minimal impact to the five-year survival rates of patients with cancer. Again, 2.1% in the U.S. part of that study, 2.3% in the Austrian, Australian part of that study. Radiation can cause metastasis, local recurrence, and actually new primaries. Surgery can cause metastasis, and surgery can cause local recurrence. This is the data, and this is what necessitates a change in paradigm, a change in approach, one that provides hope, one that provides healing, one that provides teaching to serve the patients through the process of integration, which is to restore the whole. I encourage you to go over to the website of Brio Medical, where I'm medical director, briomedical.com. There you can learn all about the different cancer types and the precision cancer care founded in evidence that we provide. There you can actually schedule your free consultation and begin your healing journey today. For more information just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. 
whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease. Our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our featured podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.